Let's turn our Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter number 32. Man, it's a blessing to be in the Lord's house. I enjoy going to church. Amen. I have fun going to church. I think we ought to enjoy going to church. Amen. And ought not be a drudgery. And uh, it ought to be a blessing. Amen. And so I'm thrilled to be here with you today. Excited for what the Lord will do. Genesis chapter 32. Now, before we read our text, I want you to understand a little bit about what's going on in this passage of Scripture. Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac, has spent 20 years in the household of his father-in-law Laban. And he has, in that time, he has married two wives. He has fathered 11 sons. He has grown to be a wealthy and powerful and prosperous individual. But then all of a sudden, he is forced to leave uh, in Laban's household. He can tell that Laban's countenance, not towards him as it once was, and he feels himself under threat, and he hears the call of Canaan in his heart once again. He had left there as a young man after defrauding his brother of his birthright or of his blessing, after purchasing his birthright, defrauding him of the blessing, and incurring the ire and the anger of Esau, his brother. He fled into the land of Haran to take a bride and to escape the wrath of Esau. And he spent 20 years there, and in that 20 years, a lot has changed in his life. In that 20 years, God's been faithful to him. In that 20 years, there's been times that God has spoken to him and dealt with him. But in that 20 years, largely, Jacob has sought through his own wisdom and cunning and the energy of his flesh to secure the place and station that he has in his life. But when we come to Genesis 32, we find a pivotal moment in his life. On this evening, he meets somebody that takes hold of him and wrestles him and brings him to a place of spiritual realization and of growth and of depth that he had never known before. I want us to read about that instant this morning. I want us to just say a few things about this passage and see what the Lord would have for us. Genesis chapter 32, we'll begin reading in verse number 22. The Bible says, And he rose up that night and took his two wives and his two women servants and his eleven sons and passed over the ford Jabbok. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. When he saw that he prevailed not against him, in other words, when the man wrestling with Jacob saw that he prevailed not against Jacob, he, the man, touched the hollow of his, Jacob's, thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day break. And he, Jacob, said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. Jacob asked him, and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for he I have seen God face to face. And my life is preserved. I'll go ahead and go to this here since this one's given problems. Seeing God face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. Therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh, in the sinew that shrank. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. Thank you for letting us gather here in the house of God. Lord, I've already been blessed by being here. Lord, I want to pray and I want to ask that you guide and direct me this morning. I want to please you. Lord, that's that's my heart's desire in all that's said and done. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would have perfect liberty to work, to minister, to woo and to move in this place. Lord, that as we leave here today, we'll have left not just having an experience, Lord, not just having experienced church, but, Lord, that we would leave here having heard from heaven and having been made more like Christ and grown closer to you. Lord, I love you. Thank you for loving me. I ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. When I read this passage of Scripture, I'm immediately struck by what this passage is really fundamentally about. You know, I think often as we read the Word of God, there's a lot of good things we say about a passage and never really understand what the passage is all about. When I read this uh, passage of Scripture, there's three things that immediately jump 
to my attention. One, I would say this. This is obviously a passage that's about problems. When you look at Jacob's life at this season and at this moment, his problems have caught up with him. We didn't take the time to read it, but if you read earlier in chapter 32, he's getting ready to face his brother Esau. It's been 20 years since he's seen Esau. And the last thing Esau said is, when Isaac is dead, Jacob, I'm going to kill you. And now Jacob has spent 20 years running from his past, running from his problems. But now he is getting ready to stand face to face with the biggest problem that he has. But it wasn't merely Esau that was a problem for him. I would say three things about his problems. One, when we read this passage, we're reminded that Jacob has a problem in his home. I don't know if you picked up on it, but there in our text, we're told that he took his wives, not just one wife. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? Well, I'm saying this, if you know the story of Jacob and his home, you know it was not a happy home. No home with two wives in it is a happy home. Somebody say amen to that. I don't care what the LDS say, amen. And uh, Jacob's home had been deeply, severely divided. He had married two women, one by the name of Leah, one by the name of Rachel. Rachel he loved, Leah he despised. And, and within that home, there was a constant state of conflict, of discord, of restlessness, of, of combativeness and hostility. His home was a complete and utter wreck. I'm glad to report to you this morning, if you've got a problem in your home, I know a God that can fix it. Jacob not only has a problem in his home, he's got a problem in his heart. Because Jacob has spent 20 years running from the place of God's choosing, running from the place of God's blessing. He has spent this 20 years through his own cunning and wisdom and machinations trying to accomplish what God and only God could have accomplished uh, through his blessing. Makes you wonder how it would have all been different if Jacob had trusted the Lord to give him the blessing instead of trusting his mama's counsel and his own wisdom to get the blessing. Could have been his life would have turned out completely different. And now all of a sudden, his problems have run him aground like a pack of hounds. And God is zeroing in on a problem. Uh, Jacob, he's a good man, but he is a uh, carnal man in many ways. He is a man that is leaning upon his own flesh. God's going to do something about that in this passage. He's got a problem in his home. He's got a problem in his heart, but he's got a problem ahead of him. As we said a moment ago, he's getting ready to meet Esau, who's riding with a force 400 strong. One of the prophecies that was given about Esau by his father Isaac when Isaac uh, spoke to him was that he would live by his sword. And it appears in that 20 years that they have been apart from one another that Esau has done that very thing. Situating himself in the in the rocky and rough and mountainous region of uh, Edom and of Mount Seir, he seems to have become somewhat of a local warlord or chieftain who is able with great authority and power uh, to be able to withstand his foes. You know, Edom would go on to have a reputation as being a notably thorny and difficult place to conquer. Uh, Many years later, uh, great armies uh, led by great military minds would crash themselves on the mountains of Seir and of Edom trying to root out the mountain inhabitants that lived there. They're kind of like Appalachians. Somebody say amen to that. And uh, now all of a sudden Esau is headed towards him. The question might be asked, well, preacher, why would he go towards uh, Esau? Because if he was going to get back to Canaan, that's the way he had to go. He, he couldn't go to the west around the, the sea because the Canaanites would have slain him. The only viable path for him was along the coast and passing directly by Mount Seir. And now his problem has met him head on. When I read this passage, I'm reminded that it's a passage about problems. But then I would say number two this morning, this is a passage about prophecy. Say, preacher, how is it a passage about Prophecy. Well, you know, it's interesting when you look at Israel and their relationships to these three men that we call the patriarchs. When we speak of Israel's patriarchs, we're speaking about three generations of men whom God dealt with and whom God made distinct promises towards Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And, you know, when you read in the Bible, isn't that always the formula you read? He's the God of Abraham, Isaac And of Jacob doesn't go on to include Joseph or any of the other sons, but it's always Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. When you think about those men and their faith and their walk with God, it's interesting to note that in many ways, those three men represent Israel throughout her history. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, for instance, Abraham reminds me of Israel from the period of her wilderness wandering till the time of the judges. 
Say, how so? Well, for one, Abraham was called out of Gentile darkness by faith. Same way Israel was out of Egypt. Abraham is led by God's hand through the wilderness, the same way that Israel is. Abraham, though uh, moments of failure are present and, and faithlessness in his life, he does ultimately enter the land. And when you read Israel's history, particularly in their wilderness wanderings, there was a lot of times you'd have thought, they ain't never going to make it there, they ain't never going to get there. But by the high hand of God, they were brought from Egypt all the way to the land of Canaan. And Abraham, in the simplicity of his faith, becomes the friend of God. He knows God, not in a relationship that's vested in ritual, ceremonial, commandments, and law, but rather in faith and faith alone. In fact, the book of Romans tells us that Abraham was justified by faith, had righteousness imputed unto him. He believed the Lord and righteousness was imputed unto him long before the law was ever given. What a reminder that is to us that it was never the law that afforded any righteousness to Israel. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But it was always by faith. It was by faith for Abraham. It was by faith for uh, David. It was by faith for Noah. It was by faith for Enoch. It was always by faith. So Abraham reminds me of Israel in the wilderness to the book of Judges. But then Isaac reminds me of Israel from the time of the kings all the way to the times of their exile. Say, how so, preacher? Well, Isaac, like David, is a promised son. Like Solomon, he is a son that is building on the uh, blessings and promises that God made to his father. And he becomes, through those blessings, powerful, prosperous, and prominent. You know what a picture that is of Israel. From the time of David's reign until Solomon's reign, uh, they have become powerful, prosperous, and prominent. But Isaac is plagued by two problems that also plagued Israel during that time. One, he has a carnal appetite. He doesn't hunger after the things of the Lord, but he wants the venison from the field that Esau can bring him. There's not a lot said about Isaac during that time, but one of the things we're told is how much he loved to eat deer meat. Nothing wrong with that, by the way, amen. But... uh, He has a carnal appetite after the things of the flesh. And then there's a second problem that Isaac has. He also has a divided home. Uh, You think about these two boys that he has, Esau and Jacob. And, you know, part of Israel's problem during that time from David down to the exile was they became a divided home. When you think about those two boys, they sort of remind us of those two kingdoms that existed in Israel at one time. For instance, one son, Esau, he is secular in his mind. He is carnal in his desires. And he is rebellious towards God's system and God's authority. Like the northern kingdom, Esau's rebellion ultimately led him to sell his birthright and lose his blessing and fade into obscurity. What a picture it is of that band of men that said whenever Rehoboam gave his counsel and gave his edict and his mandate that said, we have no part in the son of Jesse, Israel, to your tents. They walked away from Jerusalem. They walked away from the temple. They walked away from their faith. And they walked off into destruction and obscurity. Hundreds of years later, the Assyrian army would come in and annihilate them and destroy them and displace them with their own kind. Esau reminds me of the northern kingdom. But then the other son, Jacob... He's different. He has a spiritual perspective and he retains the worship of his father's God. But he's selfish, deceptive and self-willed. He's religious, but he seeks to accomplish God's will through his own strength and through his own wisdom. He seeks to connive and work for what God promised to give by grace. And like the southern kingdom, Jacob's self-will ultimately leads to his exile in the lands of the Gentiles. It's interesting to think about Isaac. But then what about this man, Jacob? What does he remind us of? Well, I think in many ways he reminds us of Israel and her history from the moment of the exile until the coming kingdom of Christ. Now, this is a time that the Bible calls the times of the Gentiles. We're living in the times of the Gentiles. And you think about Jacob and how he reminds us of Israel in exile and afterwards. For instance, while in exile, he falls in love with a woman both barren and idolatrous. While in exile, he schemes to grow his wealth. While in exile, (laughs) he has a beloved son by the name of Joseph, who will be loved by his father. Oh, help me now. A beloved son named Joseph, who will be loved by his father. 
rejected by his brethren, sold for pieces of silver, reckoned dead by his father, cast into prison because a sinful woman snatched his coat and lied about him. You say, preacher, what does that remind you of? Well, it reminds me of the church, wicked and unclean, but having laid claim on the coat of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and thereby vindicated, pardoned, and allowed to go free because of it. But what did it cost Joseph? Well, he is cast into prison so that that coat can go to that woman. He's remembered by God in the prison. He's raised to new life out of the prison. He's exalted through his interpretation of dreams, his supernatural knowledge of things to come. He is exalted and he is able to save the world. He rescues the world and secures a throne second only to Pharaoh himself. Once he does, he takes a Gentile bride and a new name. And then he rescues his family and brings them to repentance and to a right relationship with himself. All this happened when uh, it didn't all happen while Jacob was in exile. But he had the son that accomplished all of this during his exile. Now, with this in mind, I don't know about you, but I'm reminded of Israel during the tribulation. Interestingly, it's a time that the book of Jeremiah calls Jacob's trouble. It's a time when they will be confronted by their enemies like Jacob was in this passage. It'll be a time when they are helpless in their situation like Jacob is in this passage. It'll be a time when God wrestles them into submission through persecution, just like God did Jacob in this passage. It's a time when they will come to know God in true faith, just as Jacob does in this passage. It's a time that they will get a new identity, just as Jacob does in this passage. It's a time that they will, through God's deliverance, prevail over their foes, just as Jacob does in this passage. And wait a minute. It's a time they will be reconciled to and received by a formerly hostile world full of enemies. You see, in many ways, I think Jacob's trouble, and Jacob had a lot of trouble in his life, both before and after this. But when I read this passage, it reminds me of the time of Jacob's trouble when God will again deal with Israel. It's also interesting to me to note the picture in Jacob's thigh sinew that God wounded. Stop and think for just a moment. A part of Jacob's body, the key to the body's stability and strength, was wounded by God so that the rest of the body could be saved and so Jacob could become Israel in truth and know God in a truly spiritual relationship. We're right now at the Christmas season. You know, one of the things that's said about the Lord is that his name would be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. I want to be clear with what I'm about to say. It is certainly true that he died for the sins of the whole world. He tasted death for every man, not just for this group and that group, not just for not for just for Jews, not just for Gentiles, uh, not just for hipsters. Uh, no, instead, he died for everybody. Amen. But it's interesting to note that there is a particular ministry to Israel and that him as their king being crucified, that in many ways he was wounded The body was weakened, but it will ultimately be led to a new dimension of spiritual reality for them. Hey, here's how Paul says it in the book of Ephesians, that God has uh, foreordained, he's predestined uh, us, uh, talking about Jews under the adoption of sons to Jesus Christ, uh, or uh, to himself by Jesus Christ. In other words, that it was always that it would be through the wounding of that seat of strength, stability, and, and balance that they would be able to know God. It's no wonder that when the Lord appears to Israel in glory, it'll be with a name written on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this is a passage about problems, and it's a passage about prophecy. But I'm reminded of a reference to this passage that's found in the book of Hosea. I want you to listen to it. Hosea 12.2 says this, The Lord hath also a controversy with Judah, and will punish Jacob according to his ways. According to his doings will he recompense him. He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and by his strength he had power with God. Yea, he had power over the angel and prevailed. How did he do that? He wept and made supplication unto him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spake with us. You see, this isn't just a passage about problems and about prophecy. This is at its heart a passage about prayer. Say, preacher, how is it about prayer? Well, I would say this. It's an example of prayer. 
Hosea says, when he looked up and said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. He was praying and seeking something from the Lord. It's an example of prayer. I would say this, and I hope to show you this before we're done. It's an explanation of prayer. It teaches us some things about what prayer is and what it means in our life. And then I would say that it's an exhortation to prayer. When I know that Jacob gained a victory, not by striving, but by supplication, not by prevailing through his strength, but through praying. And it reminds me how important it is that I pray in my life. I want to preach to you on the thought this morning, wrestling in prayer. I want to give you three things and then I'll be done. When we read this passage of Scripture, we find that this moment of prayer, we could call it this moment of crises in Jacob's life, does not begin when he arrives at the Ford Jabin. In fact, it's many long years in the making that God might bring him to this appointed place that God could deal with him, deliver him of his old way of doing things, and teach him some new things about the Lord. I would say this, that when we come to this passage, we see Jacob provoked to prayer. It's interesting, Jacob, he knows that uh, Esau is waiting down the road and he does not know what that will mean. He does not know what that will hold. But as Jacob is traveling, he stops at a place called Mahanaim. And the Bible says at the beginning of this chapter that God's host met him there, that two angels met him there. And so Jacob calls that place Mahanaim, which means the place of two camps. And then he does this. He divides everything he has into two bands. And I think probably what Jacob had in mind is there'll be one angel that goes with one band and another angel that goes with another band. And so he divides his wealth, his means, his servants into one band and then taking only his household servants and his wives and his children and their handmaidens, he comprises the second band. He then leaves in the Bible. It's the reason the Bible says that he sent them forward. Here in this passage, though, he has sent his wife and children, his household servants ahead, and he has gotten alone by himself with the Lord. In fact, I would say it this way. He would have never got alone with God if it hadn't been for the threat that he was facing in the first place. Say, preacher, how did God... Provoke Jacob to prayer. Well, the same way he provokes you and I to prayer. I see three ways that he did it. Number one, I see this. His problems have found him. The things that he had avoided for decades have now caught up with him. And there is nowhere to run. There is nowhere to flee. There is nowhere to hide. He has got a a head-on collision with his problems coming his way. I don't know about you, friend, but oftentimes I'm just going to make confession to the carnality of my disposition. There are times in my life that if it weren't for problems, I wouldn't be driven to the prayer closet. If it weren't for the affliction, I wouldn't come and seek the Lord. If it wasn't for the angst or anxiety that I'm feeling that I'd never seek God. And, you know, we ought to stop and ask ourselves when problems come into our life. It doesn't mean God's judging us. He may be judging us, but it doesn't mean necessarily He's judging us. But I do think He's ringing our bell. I do think He's calling our name. I do think He's getting our attention. And in this passage, Jacob no doubt would have never stopped had it not been that his problems had found him. I would say there's a second thing that provokes him to prayer here. That's that his plan has failed him. I can identify a little bit with Jacob. He's a planner. He's a planner. He's the kind of guy, he's always got a plan for something. And all through his testimony here in Scripture, you find that he always seems to believe two things. He always seems to believe that he's the smartest person in the room and that he's at least two steps ahead of everyone else. <laughs> he thought that till chapter 32. And now all of a sudden, all of his careful planning and scheming has fallen to pieces. He's literally sitting in an ash pile of his wisdom, cunning, and machinations. He is here because his wisdom and his cunning brought him here. His deceptiveness has brought him here. Had he not tried to steal the blessing from Esau, he wouldn't be in this situation. But his whole plan has fell apart, and he doesn't have a next step. You know, sometimes in our life, God will let our little plans that we make fall to pieces. Uh, some of the greatest things God's given me, He couldn't give me till what I wanted was robbed from me. Till what I planned fell apart. And when I read this passage of Scripture, I see a man who has no plan. Uh, a man who has no course of action. 
A man who gets alone by himself to seek the Lord because he is at the mercy of his brother and he has no direction to go and nowhere to run. His problems have found him. His plan has failed him. But I think there's a third thing that we see in this passage, and that's that God's presence had followed him. You know, the Bible doesn't say that Jacob went and found God and wrestled him. The passage says that Jacob gets alone and God comes and finds him and wrestles Jacob. And you know, sometimes in our life, God will, through our problems, bring us to a place of prayer. Sometimes it'll be through the failure of our plan, but sometimes God will just reach and grab, lay iron grip on our heart and begin to deal with us and begin to to burden us and begin to trouble us till we might come and seek him for help. Hey, the psalmist said, I was I went astray before I was afflicted. The things that were brought into his life, the trouble, the, the, the distress that he experienced became a catalyst to leading David to the Lord and, and, and causing him to seek God in his times of despair and in his times of calamity. And here in this passage, it's not so much Jacob dealing with God. This is God dealing with Jacob. You know, often in our lives, God will allow things to disturb us and distress us. And burden us because he's trying to get our attention and draw us unto himself. When I read this passage, I see Jacob provoked to prayer. Then I would say, number two, when I read this passage, I see Jacob prevailing in prayer. He wins the day, but he doesn't win it through his strength. He wins it through his supplication. Look with me at verse 24. The Bible says Jacob was left alone and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, when God saw that he didn't prevail against Jacob. Now, somebody's going to say, well, preacher, how do you know it was God? Well, you argue with Jacob when you get to heaven. He said it was God. It's the angel of the Lord. That's who that is in the Old Testament. And, and God wrestles with Jacob. And when God saw that God prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh. And the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. See, when I read this passage and his prevailing of, uh, of prayer, it doesn't begin with him losing. It begins with him winning and God having to disabuse him of that notion of victory. You know, one of the things that's so toxic about the prosperity gospel movement is the way it presumes to weaponize a person's relationship with God. To convert God into some semblance of a cosmic butler that's just here to answer what you want and do what you desire and just waiting to be commanded and demanded to behave and act in a certain way. It's interesting to note that God lets Jacob win for a while, but it is not that he might gain confidence in his winning, but rather it's that he might lose confidence in his strength. Wonder how many times we take the wrong lesson from an answered prayer. God, my life's a mess. My marriage is falling apart. I've made mistakes. I've been self-willed. I've not had my family in church. God, please heal us. God heals you. And you say, well, I knew she loved me after all. You might be surprised. Oh, preacher, our, our, I mean, listen, we're hard up against it. Everything's falling apart. We got no means. We got no resources. I mean, li- listen, we, we, we were doing okay. And then somebody elected Joe Biden. And, and then now everything's falling to pieces and we can't make ends meet. And preacher, we just, we're in a mess. Pray for us. Pray. God answers. You say to yourself, well, there was no need to be prudent after all. God met the need. You got a child that gets out of the will of God, spends a little time in the far country. Uh, good parents, better parents than me have had that happen. Better parents than me have had that happen. But you beg God for them and you pray and you seek the Lord and you fast and you see God pull them out of the hog slop and put them back at the father's table. And then you walk away from it and say, you know, maybe I was just too hard on them. Maybe they need to be easier on their kids. I'm saying this, sometimes we take the wrong lesson from God's mercy and grace. If God had allowed Jacob to win this way, every prayer would have been him trying to wrestle God into submission from that day forward. 
Now, you might ask the question, well, preacher, why did he allow him to prevail after all? I mean, he, he's God. Why, why, after all, did he even allow it for a moment for him to prevail? He could have just allowed him to run up. He just threw him down on the ground, and that'd be the end of it, and that'd be all that she wrote. I think there's a very simple explanation for that. He needed Jacob to feel the robbing of his strength before Jacob would ever come to a right appraisal of the place of prayer. You might have feel robbed of your strength lately. You might feel as though things that you thought you had some foundation stability in and now they're gone. You might have thought, hey, preacher, that that savings account was supposed to get me through. That IRA was supposed to get me through. Hey, preacher, I I, I thought, listen, this this person, I, I thought I'd be with them for the rest of my life. I, preacher, you don't understand. I mean, my kids, I, I knew they was going to grow up and serve the Lord. And all of a sudden, that's all been ripped from you. There's two ways you can take that. You can look at it and say, well, God don't love me. And God's failed me. Or you can look at it and you can ask yourself, what was God trying to teach me about where security and stability lies in the first place? I see the dominating of his strength. Notice number two, I see the shrinking of his sinew. Verse 25 says this, he touched the hollow of his thigh and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with it. Now, we're all too fat to have hollows of the thigh, but what he's referencing is the seat of power, stability, and strength. Some of y'all have had hip issues, hip problems. Man, you know, there's a lot of things that if it go, if that hip goes, you have no stability, you have no strength. It's everything you can do merely to try to stand. What was he doing here? He was showing Jacob that the things that he thought were getting him through all those years, one, weren't what really carried him but two could be robbed from him in a moment. Sometimes God has to take some things from us to get us to see that it was never those things and it was never us. It was always God that saw us through. You know, part of the reason God weakens us in prayer is so that we'll pray. But it doesn't do that because he's a petulant God setting up star for attention and glory. I mean, you understand that he's got literally untold numbers of angels that can sing better than you and I singing his praises. He's not setting up in glory, nervous, popping pills, scared over whether everybody likes him. So why would he do this? He didn't do this because he needed to be prayed to. He did this because Jacob needed to pray. And in your life, often he will shrink the things that we're leaning upon. He will damage the things that we are trusting in. He will diminish the things that we think provide us security and stability that we might instead learn that stability never lied there in the first place. It always lay in the Lord. It's interesting. Jacob wasn't none the worse from this day forward. In fact, his life didn't get worse. His life got better. He would go back to Canaan and dwell in the land of of the Canaanites, unharmed largely and unmolested for the most part. And he would even when famine came, that son that God gave him during his time of exile would become his salvation. And he would be delivered and given a place of prominence that nobody that he could have never gotten. Speckled and strafed cattle could have never got him to the palaces of Egypt. But God did. His his wisdom, his knowledge, his business mind could have never saved him from that famine. But God did. And here's what I'm saying. Those things that God takes from us, well, not begrudge. Because God's seeking to give us something far better than what was taken in the first place. I see the shrinking of his sinew. And then I see the prevailing of his supplication. And he said, let me go for the day breaketh. Here's what Jacob said. I will not let thee go. Except thou bless me. That's interesting that God said that. God tells Jacob to let him go. But doesn't really want Jacob to let him go. <laughs> God's smart enough. God, God's a good parent. He, he, he used a little reverse psychology here on Jacob. And says, let me go. And he says, no, I will not till you bless me. And he says, I want to bless you, Jacob. But there's something you got to do first. Verse 27. He said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob, Jacob means trickster, supplanter, deceiver. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. What do we see in the prevailing of his supplication? Well, there's three things that were a process of it. This is part of your prayer life and mine. 
The first is this. He clings to the Lord. He goes from conquering to clinging. Sometimes God has to change our position in order to do a work in our life. When we think we have the mastery of the situation, sometimes all we're doing is putting chains on God's hands and limiting the Holy One of Israel. And sometimes he has to take us out of control for him to be in control. And Jacob, once his weakness floods over him, once his strength seeps away from him, now he's just trying to hold up. And in just trying to hold to God, he accomplishes more than he ever accomplished in all those years of wrestling life to his whim and to his will. He clings to the Lord. Number two, he confesses his weakness. What is thy name? Now, I don't mean weakness in the sense of him saying, my thigh's hurting. That's what it would sound like if I was wrestling God. Ow! My thigh's hurting. No, that's not what your Bible says. He confesses his weakness. What, what does he confess? What's your name, Jacob? What's your name? What are you? I'm a deceiver. I'm a supplanter. I'm a schemer. And everything I've done in my life and everything that I have in my life, I thought I had because of my deception. I thought I had because of my scheming. I thought I had because of my cunning. And now, Lord, I realize that I didn't have any of those things through that, but through your blessing and your favor and your grace and through your strength. Part of the purpose of prayer is to clear our mind about some things. And part of the part of the purpose of suffering is to clear our mind from some things. I wonder if you were robbed of everything but God, how would you feel? Would he still be enough? He's enough when we got all the other things. But would he be enough if he was the only thing? Here he confesses his weakness. And then three, he claims the blessing. I want to be clear what I mean by that. He doesn't make his word into reality and proclaim the blessing like Jesse Duplantis would. Yeah, I don't know how he does that. It's amazing. He can, he can by faith claim and buy Learjets out of widow's money. It's amazing. Makes it reality. <laughs> no, that's not what I mean when I say he claims the blessing. What I mean is this. He secured the blessing. Prayer did what prevailing couldn't. Supplication did what strength couldn't. Seeking the Lord, requesting, did what his own rebelliousness and his own self-will never could. And I'm, I'm just telling you this morning, there's things that only prayer can do. You remember when the Lord came off of the mountain and there was a young man there that had been tormented by a devil? And the disciples could not heal him. And they bring him to Jesus. And Jesus commands the unclean spirit to depart and delivers him and and, and, and works a miracle in his life. And his disciples say, Lord, why could not we do that? That's a dumb question. But I, I would have asked it too. Why could we not? Now, here's what you think would have been the answer, because you're not God. That would have been the answer I would have thought. I mean, that would have been when I asked that dumb question. Dumb questions get dumb answers. Dumb games get dumb prizes. I would have thought when I asked, why could I not do it? That he would have said, because you're not me. But he didn't. He said, this kind cometh not forth, but by much prayer and fasting. He didn't say it's because you couldn't. He said it's because you wouldn't. Or as James will later say, we have not because we ask not. He doesn't say, well, you're not God and you don't have my strength at your disposal. Because the reality was they weren't God, but he was and they did have his strength at their disposal and the failure in their life was not a failure of weakness it was a failure of willfulness see it wasn't it wasn't a power failure it was a prayer failure and in your life and mine the failures we have they're not failures of wisdom they're not failures of intelligence they're not failures of resources and means and ability they're prayer failures because we've got a god that can do anything I see the prevailing of his supplication. Finally, I'll be done this morning. I want you to see not just Jacob provoked to prayer and Jacob prevailing in prayer, but I want you to see Jacob perfected through prayer. Now, you understand the biblical definition of the word perfect. It ain't perfect like I'm perfect. It's perfect like uh, mature is what it means. Mature, developed, cultivated, right? 
If something is perfect, meaning it has prepared to the appropriate point, or we could maybe say it has ripened. And in this passage, here's what we see. We see that some of the seeds that had been planted in Jacob's life years ago are finally brought to a place of fruition and ripeness. God is cultivating things in Jacob's life. Did you know God's not just giving you things by prayer? God is also changing you by prayer. He's not just bestowing things upon you through prayer. He is molding you through prayer. And we find there's three things that Jacob walks away with that are part of his perfected state, not meaning sinless, but meaning mature, spiritually developed in this passage. Notice verse 31. The Bible says this, and as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him and he halted upon his thigh. I'd say, number one, he was given a perpetual injury. Perpetual injury. He left there a weaker but wiser man. And the rest of his days, he would halt because of his thigh. You know, Hebrew, Hebrew, (laughs) Hebrews will say that he died leaning on his staff. Wonder why he had that staff to lean on in his dying days. He would have never carried that staff likely if it hadn't been for the injury that he sustained. Prayer will not make you stronger. Prayer will give you a deeper sense of your weakness. But in your weakness, his strength is made perfect. And so the net sum at the end of that exchange is you will be both weaker and stronger. You will be weaker in your own strength, but stronger in his. God could have healed him of that injury, but he didn't. He said, I want every step that Jacob takes for him to be reminded that it's only by my grace and my help that he can move through this world. He was given a perpetual injury. Number two, he was given a spiritual identity. Verse 27, he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed. Israel, a prince with God, a prince with God. That's interesting, isn't it? His name had been deceiver. I get everything in life by my own wits and wisdom and cunning and deception. I don't need nobody. I don't need anything. I will go out and carve my way in this world and I will come back a wealthy man. That was Jacob. That's what Jacob said. But Jacob ain't alive anymore. Jacob's gone now. Now, let me be clear. Jacob will continue to be called Jacob later on in the Bible. And it's interesting. God says you're Israel. But later on, the Holy Ghost also calls him Jacob. You know, that's a reminder to me of the importance of positional and practical truth. What God chooses judicially to see me, there may be a distinction betwixt that and how I'm living. How I'm living doesn't change how God chooses to see me. But how God chooses to see me uh, neither makes him blind to how I'm living. Jacob, he died here at the Brook Jacob, Brook uh, Jabbok. And Israel is given life here. What is the distinction of this spiritual identity, this new name? What is God teaching him by giving him that name? Names mean something in the Bible, um, and they're important. So what what does that name uh, bespeak to us? Well, it means a, a prince with God, having strength with God. And, you know, you think about that. God goes out of his way to say, for as a prince... Hast thou power with God and with men and hast prevailed? What's the difference between the power of a prince and the power of a king? Eventually, the prince would become the king. Undoubtedly, every person in that kingdom will bow to the authority of that prince's word, except one. The only person that won't bow to him is the king. And in fact, what strength the prince has is vested in his relationship with the king. If the king was deposed, nobody would care that he was a prince. Let's say it this way. If the king was kicked off the throne, he wouldn't be a prince anyway. So the only strength he has 
is through the king being on the throne. You know what a truth this is about our prayer life. You ain't got no strength if he's not on the throne. But if he's on the throne, then as a prince hast thou power with God and with men. We could say it two ways. Number one, a prince's power is enabled by his position. God blessed Jacob, but not because Jacob tried real hard, but rather because he was Jacob. And in the economy of God's structure, that was what God had planned for Jacob in his life. It was not because he tried real hard, figured it out, exercised a good plan. We could say it this way. It was by grace and the position that Jacob occupied by grace that he enjoyed the privileges of God. You know, you and I, the reason we have the blessing of God in our life is not because... And I do think there's things in our life that we can do that that rob us of the blessing of God. And I think there's things in our life that we can do that that embrace the blessing of God. But you understand that fundamentally at the end of the day, there ain't a one of us that has a good thing in our life because we deserved it. It's all by God's grace. And the prince, he's enabled by his position. But then number two, a prince's power, it's not just enabled by his position, it's exercised by his petition. You know how a prince gets things. Daddy, would you help me? Daddy, I have a need. Daddy, I need your help. And to him, the king is the king, but the king is more than the king. He's not less than the king. If he was less than the king, he couldn't help him. But being the king, he's not just the king. He's more than the king. He's his father as well. And if he needs something, all he has to do Say, Daddy, I need your help. And he can secure anything he needs. Here's the truth that God was teaching Jacob. All you have to do is ask, Jacob, and trust. And I'll do things for you that you couldn't even imagine. You've got all this little piddly strength that you think amounts to something because you can fool old Laban and because you, you can outrun Esau for a season and you think that means something. But he says, if I want to, Jacob, I can rob that from you in a moment. How are you going to run from Esau? With your center of your thigh shrunk. I, I can put you vulnerable and at my disposal any time that I want, Jacob. He doesn't do that because he's cruel. He does it and then says, now I wish you'd just ask me. I wish you'd just ask me. Instead of trying to be God for me, Jacob, I wish you'd just let me be God and you come to me. Instead of trying to govern your life and guide your life and, and try to, to land the, the 747 of your, of your direction in your life on the narrow landing strip of your path and your plan, I wish instead, Jacob, that you'd just say, Lord, I don't know. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't have a plan. I don't have a solution. But I've got a God that loves me. I've got a God that has promised me. I've got a God that's faithful to me. And Lord, I'm going to trust you. I've got a God I can trust. I've got a God I can trust. (laughs) He's given a perpetual injury. He's given a spiritual identity. But number three, he's given a powerful testimony. This is what he says, verse 30. Jacob called the name of the place Penal. People name places because they're important to him. And this is why it was important to him. He said, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Boy, that day changed him forever. He never forgot that day. And in years to come, he would look back and say, you know, it's the closest to God I've ever been. I was face to face with him. I was never closer to him. When I pillowed my head on that stone and saw ladders reaching into heaven, when God through his providence and, and, and through his provision spoke to me and blessed me throughout the year, but none of them compare to that night when I wrestled with God. I was closer to him in the wrestling than I was in the revelation of it. I was closer to him in that conflict than I ever was in any of the blessings that he gave me. In that moment of weakness, I saw God face to face. Say, preacher, that really changed his life. Well, not just his life. Changed the life of Jewish butchers throughout eternity. Verse 32 says this. Therefore, the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew that shrank. Every time that they went to the market 
purchased meat. Every time that they themselves would butcher an animal out of their own flock, there was a constant reminder of the truth that God had taught Jacob that day. You know, when it says the children of Israel, the children of Israel, the children of Israel, who's Israel? Jacob's Israel. Say, preacher, is that talking about the children of Israel or is it talking about the children of Israel? It's talking about the children of Israel. I don't necessarily suspect that Jews observed this uh, just eternally forward. But I do think, particularly with, with his boys, it made a real impact. You see, the descendants wouldn't have observed that if the ancestors hadn't observed that. And evidently, his boys were a mess, man. I mean, it's raising boys is hard. It's a war zone. And his his boys, some of them, man, were hard as coffin nails. I'm talking about sell your brother into slavery hard. They'd have made good Baptists. And, and <laughs> but I'll tell you one thing that made an impression on them was every time they saw their precious old daddy go limping by. And there was a constant reminder, you can't do it without God. You can't do it without God. You can't do it without God. You you don't have to be so worried about your children seeing your weaknesses. You have to be worried about them thinking you have none. You don't have to be so worried about your children seeing that you've got weaknesses. You have to be worried about them thinking that you can do it on your own. And the best thing you can ever do in your life is learn to just trust the Lord and pray and teach your children through prayer the example of needing God day by day. Let's bow together this morning. A musician's going to come and play. There's already folks in the altar. If God spoke to your heart, would you meet him down here? Let him have his will and way in your heart and in your mind. That's all I ask. I'm not going to ask you a thousand questions. I'm just telling you, if God stirred your heart about something, it must be important. So would you meet him down in this altar? Let him speak to your heart further. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. He's worthy. He's everything, Lord. He's everything. He's worthy. He's what matters, not me. He's what matters, not us. May he be glorified. Lord, we ask it in Christ's name.